Amen. Thank you, Connor. Set the stage. All of us are going to cry, so hope you're excited about that. No, I just want to say, uh, first of all, welcome if you're watching online. Thanks for tuning in, and to all of you in the room as well. Thanks for being here. We're, uh, we're glad that you're here. I'm excited that you're here. Um, if you don't know me, that's probably normal. That's okay, because um, I'm fairly new here. Just got started. I think I mentioned a couple weeks ago as I was... Um, doing some announcements a couple weeks ago that uh, just started in June. So my family and I and my wife, my uh, two little boys, Cade and Kyler, my wife and I have been married for close to seven years now. We just uh, moved here to Statesboro from the Atlanta area, and so we're getting adjusted and uh, loving kind of the small town life. You know, it's a different speed. It's a different way to do things. And I just want to say thanks for all of you who have really made this a home for us. I mean, you've made it feel like home so quickly. And I'm really, really grateful for that. In fact, I um, spoke with someone a couple weeks ago and I told him that we were moving from the Atlanta area. And he said, well, of course you are. And I was like, well, I don't really know what that means, but okay. And uh, he said, well, you know, all the evil people live in Atlanta. So there you go. I'm glad to be in Statesboro. I guess God's country is here, you know, so uh, glad to be here. No, but in reality, it is, it is different and I'm adjusting to it and I love it. I'll tell you, one of the things that I love the most is that it just feels like everybody's kind of a family. It just feels like everyone knows each other. We all, you know, if you don't know me, you know my brother or my cousin or my cousin's sister or something. Everyone knows each other. I'll never forget, like, the first week that I moved here, I went into the bank to get some things set up, and I walked directly in front of me to the lady who was at that desk in front of me, and I just said, hey, I need to do this and that. And so she pulled up my information on the computer, and I guess she saw my address was an Atlanta address. We hadn't quite transitioned everything yet. And so she said, oh, are you making a move? And I said, yeah, yeah, I just moved down here. And she said, well, where are you coming from? I told her where we're coming. She said, well, what brought you here? And so I said, well, I got a job here in the area. It's just a job transition. She said, oh, that's great. Well, where are you going to be working? I was like, well, going to be working at a church here in the area. She said, well, that's great. What church? I thought, wow, this lady's really interested in my life, you know? So I said, well, it's a connection church. And she said, oh, that's great. And then she kind of yelled at the lady a couple cubicles down. And she said, hey, hey, don't you go to connection? And then got her involved. And she was like, no, I don't. But my neighbor's cousin, she goes and she said she loved it. And so now the whole bank is involved in the conversation of me moving to Statesboro. And it even got better. And she said, well, that's awesome. Have you guys found a place to live? I said, no, we haven't. We're still looking. We're living with my wife's father right now. And, and she said, well, what's his name? Oh, goodness gracious. Okay. I mean, she was so sweet. But I said, well, his name, you know, told her his name. And she said, well, I know him. And then it was just from then on, I felt like I made a best friend at the bank. We were all friends. And so I just, I love that kind of atmosphere here in town. It's been really, really refreshing for me. And then it was interesting, though, a couple weeks later, I got into a conversation with a young man, and, and he proceeded to tell me that he was looking to make a move out of Statesboro. So I said, well, you know, what's causing that? What are, you, what are you trying to do? And he said, well, you know, I just, I made some big mistakes in high school and college. He said, I just can't seem to get out from under the reputation that I developed during that stage of life. And he said, no, I really am trying to make some changes, but it just seems like it's held over my head, and I can't do that. And probably like you, I heard that and went, oh, man, just my heart breaks for that guy, you know. And, but immediately I thought, you know what you're really longing for is you're longing for grace. That's what you're needing is grace. 
both from the sense of like a forgiveness of your sin, of your past, but even from the sense of like a momentum or a power to change who you are now, to bring about some transformation in your life. And we started last week, we started kind of a collection of talks that we're doing around this subject of grace. And if you're like me, I hear that and I go, wow, what a massive topic, right? How do we even begin to get our hands on this subject? And so as I've been praying about it and studying it, it really became clear, I think, for me and my job today is hopefully to lay out for you the different, there's two really different kinds of grace, the way that it's expressed in scripture and the way that we experience it as followers of Jesus. And I think most of us are familiar with the first way that it's expressed, but maybe not so much the second, at least I don't know that I was. And um, it's the same thing, it's grace. In the Greek, it's the word charis. It's the same thing, but it's expressed differently in scripture. And as I studied, I found that, you know, grace, the word grace is used throughout the narrative of scripture like 131 times. Out of that 131 times, it's 128, I believe, at least in the translation that I read, 128 of those times, it's in the New Testament alone. Out of that 128, I think it was like 86 times we find the word grace is used by the same author, and it's the Apostle Paul, which may be the reason why you often hear the Apostle Paul referred to as the Apostle of Grace. He really cares a lot about grace. And so I want to point out to us a couple ways that the Apostle Paul writes about grace, and um, hopefully it'll help us understand it a little bit more. The first scripture that I just want to kind of bring in front of us this morning is in Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, verse 17, it says this, For if because of one man's trespass, and he's talking about Adam there, if for one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So there we see grace really mapped out as it's a what they call salvific grace. It is the grace that you receive upon the moment of saying yes to Jesus, that moment you go from death to life. It's salvation that comes to you by grace, right? Then we see in Ephesians chapter 2, maybe a familiar passage for you. It says that for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, just a free gift of God, his grace given to you. So we typically understand grace in this way, that it is salvific. It saves us from our sins at that moment of salvation. It's a free gift. It is the forgiveness of sin, even though I cannot possibly earn it. God has made a way to save me because of his great love for me. That is grace. But many of us, I think, stop there with our understanding of grace, or at least we only see our encounter with grace as being a forgiveness of sin kind of grace. We may say things throughout our day like, wow, I really need God's grace today because I just messed up big time, right? Or you may say something like, man, I really need God's grace. I just can't stop sinning. And we see it as this like forgiveness of grace transaction there. But if we study grace in the scripture, we see that it is at work in a whole different way as well from just the forgiveness of our sins. We look in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. You don't have to turn that. It'll be on the screen. I just want to show you. 
In verse 8, it says that God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. So in this passage, we come across grace more as a power at work within you. It's an influence for obedience. Also, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, Jesus says to Paul, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. So it is his acting on our behalf. It's his grace that is sufficient for our daily living. So my point here is not necessarily to exegete or explain these passages, but just to point out to you that grace is expressed in really these two different ways. We, I heard someone say it is both a salvific and a transformative grace. It saves us and it transforms us. And as you go on reading Paul's letters in the New Testament, he's constantly encouraging believers who experience God's grace at the moment of salvation to continue to rely on his grace in their daily lives. He says, don't go back. Don't go back to the law where it's all about how good you can be and your performance, but rely on God's grace by the Holy Spirit. In one commentary I read, it said it this way that made a lot of sense to me. It said that grace is both the pardon for sin and it is the power for living. And I just think the majority of us are probably familiar with that pardon of sin grace, but maybe not as much with the power for living grace. I think most of us kind of see ourselves on a trajectory in our spiritual walk. You probably have, you know, some kind of experience here. If you've received Jesus, like this moment of salvation, where it's a free gift by grace. He saved me, he brought me from death to life. I've come into relationship with him. And then maybe, you know, here you are now five years down the road or five months down the road or whatever it is. Maybe you've seen some sort of acting on God in your life. He's changed you. He's transformed you. You find yourself here. So you've gone from here to here. And then most of us kind of have this like, yeah, but there's here. And I know God's calling me to be this kind of person. I know I got some things that need to get worked out. I know there's this, there's this difference between where I'm at now and where I want to be or where God's calling me to be. Thank God he's brought me from where I was, but I know that I want to go here. And so we have this gap, and I would call this like a transformational gap from where you are now and where you want to be. So the question I would just kind of raise to us this morning is, how do you close that gap? How does that gap get closed? Because I think if we're honest, including myself and so much of my life with God now, it can sometimes become, well, Thank you for saving me, but now the rest is really up to me. To I just need to be more disciplined. I need to really, really get serious about this or that. And, and we see the rest as kind of our work. For me to get here, i got to do this. And yet that takes away completely from the power of God's transformational grace. And it's interesting to me because it's not just Christians who are passionate about being transformed. Whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian, we all kind of have this, this desire to change. We all kind of have this compulsion to be our best selves, you know, or to maximize our potential. Wherever you are on the faith journey, that's all in us a little bit. I was recently reading this, um, 
a study that came out by Harvard Divinity School. A couple of researchers got together and, and they did some research and they gathered it all together in this article called How We Gather. And their purpose for their research in the article was really to answer this question of why are so many young people, specifically millennials, leaving the church? Why are they not interested in the church? I mean, it seems like young people have a lot of passion, they have a lot of energy. They really want to attach themselves to a purpose that's bigger than them. They have a value for community or at least connectivity and friendship. That seems like things that are offered at the church. I mean, why are so many people not interested in the church? That's the question they went after. I'll read one quote in the beginning of the article. It says this, Millennials are less religiously affiliated than ever before. Churches are just one of many institutional casualties of the Internet age in which young people are both more globally connected and yet more locally isolated than ever before. And what they did in this study, what they found out, and I'm simplifying it dramatically for our conversation here, but what they found out was that a lot of young people are finding their transformational needs can get met in other areas, in other institutions, and in other organizations, and other causes, at least they think their transformational needs can get met in other areas. So they looked at, I enjoy, they looked specifically at the physical fitness arena and even more specifically into CrossFit. And so if you're a CrossFitter uh, in the room, first of all, we all know because you've told us on social media and everything else, but um, no, it's, it wasn't a blast on CrossFit at all. They actually were praising like what CrossFit does in the community because they said one of the, some of the things that CrossFit leans into is they really breed like this awesome community of people. We're in this together. We're going to suffer together, right? But they even go beyond that. They connect kind of physical health to mental health. They even do some social things like, hey, don't just come work out with us, but let's go on Saturday and clean up trash in the area or let's do things that affect social change. It's really cool. So they tap into all these transformational things that we believe as humans that we need. And so the danger in that is most of us get involved with these kinds of things and we think, well, this is bringing the transformation. This is bridging the gap that exists because I see all these good things, right? But whether it's CrossFit or Orange Theory or a mindfulness app or a yoga studio, whatever it is that you're into, maybe it's good and helpful for you. But the question that I would ask us is, is it actually meeting the deep soul level core transformational needs that you have? And I would argue that the answer to that is no, it's not. It can't. As St. Augustine once said, our hearts are restless until they find rest in you, O God. That you may be able to change a lot of things about your appearance or whatever it is, but there is a deep transformational need in you that can't be solved by anything other than the grace of God in your life. I can point you to a lot of people who seem to have cracked the code in their physical fitness and yet lay their head down at night and wonder why they don't have the peace that they long for, the joy that they long for, the purpose that they long for. And it's because you can bridge that gap a little bit, but there is a massive gap of transform, deep level, soul level transformation that can only, only be closed by the grace of God in your life. His grace is what sustains everything for the Christian. 
and this is something that I feel like the Lord has been teaching me even as I've prepared to talk this morning, is that everything good in my life is due to his grace. Every single thing and everything good that will happen in my life is due only to his grace. So are you becoming a more patient mother to your kids? Wow, how kind of God. That's his grace in your life. Do you want to become a more patient mother to your kids? That will require God's grace in your life. Are you becoming a more loving person to your spouse, to your neighbor, to your friend, to your enemies? Wow, how kind of God that he would do that in your life. That's his grace in your life. Do you want to become a more loving person? That will require God's grace. It's only by his grace that that gap can get closed. Did you find your dream job right out of college? Wow, how kind of God. That's his grace. Do you need a little direction on what you're doing with your life? You feel lost? His grace, his grace is deeply needed in your life. And you can find it in his grace. So if the answer is simply us just saying, God, I need your grace, then why isn't it that simple? Why isn't it that simple to just say, God, I need your grace? Well, I think you could make an argument that the tide of culture is a hyper-individualistic culture that sucks us into this, like, this thing where we can't ask for help and we don't want anybody's help. And you can imagine, you know, hyper-individualism goes completely against what it means to follow Jesus. Because when I follow Jesus, I come under the authority of God and his way of living. I mean, it's hard for me to say, don't, don't tell me what to do when that's the posture of my heart when I become a follower of Jesus. So there's that. But if I'm honest, even deeper than the external culture around me is the internal culture within me. It's my sin nature. I don't want you to tell me what to do. I don't think that's a personality thing. I think that's like a human nature kind of thing. Don't tell me what to do. I can figure this thing out. I can close this gap. I can pull myself up by my bootstraps. I can get this thing done. That's in me. There's something about admitting that I need help. That is really humbling, isn't it? Because when I admit that I need help, that I can't do this on my own, there's a confession of need. What an opportunity for us as a church, really, uh, for us to gather together under one confession, the church's confession of need, that I can't, you can't, we can't figure out this life. Both the, the grace that I need for salvation, man, I need that, and I cannot figure out how to transform my life on my own. I am in desperate need of God's grace, and so are you. And that is the confession of the church, is a confession of need. So the question is, how do we get more of God's grace? I mean, I know I need it. I would argue that you need it too. So how do you get more of it? Well, first, I just want to say I get a little bit weary every time I say something like, well, if you want this from God, then you need to do this. It just sound, It's like, God, I can't manipulate God. He's God, right? But I also have to look at the truth of Scripture, and there is some like if-then kind of relationship. You look at salvation. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved, right? 
It's a free gift, but there's that if then. And so bridging that transformational gap, there is an if then kind of relationship there that I just want to point out for a second. I want to do so by turning to 1 Peter chapter 5. It's where I want to spend the rest of our time together. 1 Peter chapter 5, and we'll look at um, verse 5, starting in verse 5. It says this, it says, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Somebody say amen to that. Come on. (laughs) It says, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Let me just read that one part one more time. God opposes the proud, but he gives what to the humble? He gives grace to the humble. So apparently humility is the posture to receive God's grace. Apparently it's the posture of my heart by which God will then pour out his grace upon. So humility can be expressed in all different kinds of ways. You've probably experienced, you know, it's harder to to pinpoint somebody who's a humble person, but easier to uh, see it when someone's really arrogant or really prideful. Um, So we've experienced humility. We want to teach our kids humility, right? Like if you receive an award for something, then make sure you give credit to others who helped you get there. We kind of view that as humility, and that is humility. But what is spiritual humility? What is spiritual humility? Well, it is at its core, it's, it's me getting my eyes off of myself and onto God off of myself and completely onto God. See, prideful people can't help but look at themselves. But spiritual humility is getting the eyes off of myself. All I can see is what he did for me by saving me, the grace that he poured out on my life in that moment, and then what he's doing for me to transform me. The power for living. It's all him. It's all him. It's not me. I love that uh, scholars talk about, they look at uh, Matthew chapter 5. It's the Sermon on the Mount. It's kind of Jesus' manifesto for what it means to be a follower of him. And, and specifically in the Beatitudes, the very beginning, the very first thing that Jesus says, if you want to be a follower of mine, it says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. It's the very first thing. And many people argue that the reason is because you can't get to anything else until you realize that you are bringing absolutely nothing to the table spiritually. I am completely, utterly spiritually bankrupt when it comes to my reconciliation with God and the transformation that needs to happen in my life. I bring nothing to the table. It's all his grace working within me. That is the power of God at work in me, not just for a moment of salvation, but for your whole life of transformation. And so to open myself to his powerful, transformative grace in my life, I have to first start by embracing a humble posture, a humble posture, admitting that I am not capable. I'm not capable of closing this gap, and neither are you. So a couple of things I just want to point out about humility, and then we'll close up our time here. 
The first thing is this. You need to know that humility will break you. Welcome to church. Hope you feel encouraged. Humility is going to break you. It is against your nature. See, pride, pride shows up in all of us. You have to admit it. If you don't think you're a prideful person, well, it's because you're prideful. It shows up in all of us. It shows up in me. It showed up in me this week in different ways. It shows up in Christians in, in funny ways, too. Like, it shows up in me this week. I woke up and went to the gym, came to work, did all that without ever stopping to just ask for God's grace, without ever just even acknowledging him. And what that is at its core is just this belief that I have what it takes, honestly. I mean, I have enough leadership skills to kind of navigate work. I got enough relational skills to navigate marriage and family. Honestly, like, I got this. What pride. So prideful. It shows up in me in a weird way whenever I gather to pray with some other people in a circle. And, and before it's my turn to pray, you know what the dominating thought is in my mind sometimes? It is, I wonder if I can put together some words that kind of sound good. What pride. So prideful. Shows up in me this morning when I'm getting ready to talk to you guys. And I think, I hope these people like what I have to say. Such pride. Humility is the opposite of pride. It goes against everything that is in us, and yet it is the invitation of God that if we will humble ourselves, he will pour out his grace on us. So you need to know this. Humility is going to hurt you. Oh, it's going to be good for you. It's going to help you, but it's going to hurt. It's going to hurt in your marriage. I don't know if... Um, the officiant at your wedding ceremony said this to you, so I'm going to go ahead and say it to you. You are absolutely, utterly powerless to love your spouse the way that you promised you would, the way that they dreamed you would, and the way that Jesus says that you should. You can't do it. You are powerless to do it. And if you want a God-honoring marriage, you must first begin by acknowledging the depth of your selfishness, your bent toward self-protection, your lack of forgiveness, and your own tendency to manipulate, just to name a few. You must recognize that you're completely broken and you're powerless to love your spouse the way you should. But I got good news for you this morning. You are powerless, but God is more than powerful. And his grace is sufficient to lead you down there, to lead you to a place where you can love your spouse the way he's called you to. But if you don't start there by acknowledging your need, that you can't do it, then you will, in a sense, close off the tap to God's grace in your life. Because it requires humility. Humility will hurt. It will hurt because it will require that you give grace to others. See, you will not be able to give grace, this undeserved love. You cannot do it to others until you understand how it has been given to you. Listen, because people who think that they're good enough, that they're lovable enough, that they're perfect enough, not only is grace unnecessary, but it is offensive. They don't see their need for it. 
And if they don't need it, then why does someone else need it? So what we do is we set up an expectation, a standard for the way people should live. And when they break that expectation, which they will, we're so caught off guard because we think we've never broken that expectation. We think that we've somehow met the standard and we never need grace. Therefore, why does someone else need grace? You can't give it unless you know how much you need it. But I got news. They are people. People are broken, flawed, selfish, insecure, often acting out of their own hurt. And guess what? So are you. So are you because that's the only kind of people that exist out there. And if you have somehow experienced some sort of healing in those things I've just mentioned, then guess what? That is because God's grace met you there. It's only by his grace that you've had some healing in that. So what if, what if, what if, what if God would want to deliver grace to someone else through you? But it's going to hurt. It's hard. But we need humility in our community. We need it in our churches. And I know I'm kind of new here, so maybe this is a little bit, maybe I shouldn't say this, but we do not need more pastors, more people, more preachers, who will hold up this Bible and say that it is the story of the rescue of sinners, but who are not also willing to hold up the other hand and say, and I am he, I am that sinner. Please, 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 please stop telling me about your passion to declare the gospel of Jesus Christ to the nations. If you won't also be willing to declare your desperate need of him. Perhaps us as the church, not just this church, but just the big C church, perhaps we have misguided you by saying that the ultimate goal of following Jesus Christ is that you look like him rather than that you become someone who is so desperate for him. Oh, I would love it. I'd I'd love it if you all looked like Jesus. You'd be a great person to be around. It'd be awesome. But if it comes at the cost of you being desperate for him and needing him, I got news for you. We have really, really, really misunderstood the gospel and you can't actually do that. You can't look like him without being in need of him. You just end up putting on a show for everybody, just doing all the things that you think are the most Christian things to do. Humility will hurt. It will hurt because humility is often learned through your pain. In fact, it's most frequently learned through pain. But I am so convinced that God loves me so much that he will allow pain in my life so that I am brought to a place of desperation and utter dependence on him. At least in my theological paradigm, I don't think that God is the source of pain in our life, but I do know this, that he is so good, so kind, so gracious, so sovereign that he can use the most painful things in your life to lift your eyes to him. Because it's often in the rock bottom moments when I become most aware of my weakness and my need for God's grace. And so he very gently, lovingly leads us into moments of pain. And then he's offering to lead us out of that by his grace because we become desperate, desperate people for him. 
But it's interesting to me that even when we get in those moments of brokenness or moments of pain, there's still this, there's still something that is like we try to self-protect. You know, we don't want people to know that that's what we're going through. You know, don't, don't let anybody know that you're having to file for bankruptcy because you've been living on tons of credit, just trying to build an image for everybody and they think that you're doing well. Don't let anybody know that. Don't, don't, don't let anybody know that you're actually drowning yourself in alcohol every night, just trying to numb the pain and the disappointment in your life that you're experiencing. Don't tell anybody that. That'll, that'll mess up your reputation. And we just, we just we self-protect, you know? Don't let anybody know that your marriage is actually in complete shambles and you're just full of lust. And, man, that would ruin your reputation. And so God lovingly leads us to moments of humility where the offer is, if you will humble yourself, I will pour out my grace in your life. And what do we do? We say, no, 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 that's too painful. That's too embarrassing. I can't, can't go there. I can't do that. And we try and self-protect. And Jesus is inviting you this morning to come out of hiding, Quit pretending. In your pain, in your weakness, in your brokenness, acknowledge your need for him. And when you do, it is prime time. Prime time for God to pour out his grace in your life. See, a humble person is willing to have all of their failures, their shortcomings, their mistakes, everything just exposed. Because you know what? This isn't about me trying to prove anything to you. I can't do it. I can't close that gap. I don't need to prove to you anything. God, I'm desperate for you. I'm desperate for you to close that gap for me. And I just hear the Spirit of God saying, man, I would pour my grace out on those who would humble themselves. And so maybe, uh, maybe it'd be helpful for me to lead the way. Um, a couple years ago, I completely wrecked my life, like crash and burned it. Um, I made so, some decisions that were not good and um, ended up, I hid some secrets from my wife and a lot of people, and it eventually got exposed. And when it did, my life just came crashing down. Everything I knew felt like it was gone. And I was staring right in the face of the darkest moments of my life. Deep pain, deep shame. What have I done? Kind of moment, you know? And uh, I'll never forget, I had someone recommend that I meet with somebody named Steve. They said, you need to go talk to this Steve guy. He'd be good for you. So I said, okay. So I showed up to a Starbucks to meet with Steve, who I'd never met before. And if it was possible for anyone to just wear grace, Steve was wearing it. I mean, it was all over him. And I sat down at this table with him, and within five minutes of sitting with Steve, I just began to pour my heart out and I wept like a little baby. (laughs) 
And people in Starbucks were wondering what in the world's going on. I was a mess. And I'll never forget what uh, Steve said to me. In a weird way, he smiled. I mean, here I am just sharing the brokenness of my life, and he just smiled at me. And he said, Austin, you know, you are worse than you think you are. I thought, well, that's not helpful at all. Um, He said, you're worse than you think you are, but you're more loved than you know you are. What he was saying was so true. You know, it wasn't just this moment of failure or sin that took Jesus to the cross for me. It was, man, I've lived decades of life and decades of my sin nature and sinful things in my life that took Jesus to the cross. It wasn't just this moment. I am worse than that. You know, if anybody knew what's going on, even in your mind, you may, they may only see what happens that you do, but if they knew what was in your mind and things you think, come on, let's be honest, you're worse than you think you are. But you are more loved than you could ever possibly imagine right there being worse than you think you are. And I don't know that there's ever been more words that just pierced my heart the way that those did. And right there, I just began a journey of going, God, I am done trying to prove to people and to you that somehow I am deserving of your grace, but rather I come in humility and just admit my brokenness and my need for you because I can't do this. And in his kindness, he led me there. In his kindness, he did that for me. And that's what hurts about humility is sometimes God will lead you to broken places out of his kindness and his love for you because humility will hurt, but listen to me, grace will heal. And when his grace gets poured out in your life, it heals. It heals even the deepest brokenness. It transforms the most outrageous life. And it repairs and restores relationships better than anything else. But it's his grace. And he pours it out on people who are willing to humble themselves and say, I need it. I can't do this. And unfortunately, the church becomes some weird place where when you finally get to this place of humility and brokenness, the church becomes, you know, more of a, it's not safe. It becomes a really scary place. And we're more scared to go to church than we are. We feel safe to go to church. Man, my heart is broken for people who have experienced that level of, God, I am desperate for you. And my heart is to go, the church is the best place for you because his grace is the only thing that can meet you there and the only thing that can heal you. And so I think that would be what I would give you this morning is the same thing. Grace, nothing else but grace, will heal your deepest brokenness, will transform your life, will restore your relationships. It is grace that will do that. I'm going home this afternoon in a little bit to my wife and my two boys. only because of grace, for no other reason but grace met me in my brokenness. 
And he will do the same for you. But it will require you going, God, I need you. I can't do this. And so I'd ask, maybe we just bow our heads and close our eyes, and Chase is going to sing a song, and maybe we just let him sing over us. And but what is it this morning that God's leading you to? What kind of posture of humility? What would humility look like for you? Maybe it's just sitting there in your chair with your hands open, saying, God, here I am. The darkest places in me, the most broken places in me, I need your grace. Maybe it means you just kind of reach over, grab your spouse's hand, and just together as a couple, you guys say, Lord, we are desperate for your grace. We can't do this thing you've led us to on our own. It's only your grace that can do this. It's only your grace. Maybe today is the day you walk out of here and you confess something that needs to be confessed. And you tell someone, I've been pretending, I've been acting, I've been trying to put on a show, but reality is I am an absolute mess and I am in need of God's grace. Maybe today is that day for you. But the invitation, I think, is clear. God's grace is able. Will you come to him? Will you ask him for it? And so, Lord, we confess our need. We don't have what it takes. We don't have what it takes to transform ourselves, to save ourselves. And everything in us just wants to protect God, but you are calling us to something else to humility, to almost lean into brokenness because it's there where you lean into us with your grace. And so, Father, I pray even right now that um, those who feel like they are beyond your grace today, that, that you would prove yourself to them and that your grace would be more powerful and potent than even the pain that they're walking through. Thank you for it. In Jesus' name.